Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series of patient interviews. So, Ellen, tell me what you understand about your health now. My health now? Yeah. What I understand about my health now is that I have pulmonary fibrosis. And it is a, I mean, a, I guess I would, it's certainly a chronic disease, but it is a sort of a terminal diagnosis. I'm not going to ever get better. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get worse. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and when I first got the diagnosis, the feeling I got at the time was, not only are you going to get worse, but you're going to get worse quickly and you're going to die. Mm. And so it was like uh, a death sentence. Of course, we all know we're going to die, but I didn't expect, I wasn't sure that that's where I was. And so now, having had this experience with hospice and palliative care, I feel like I have a chronic illness that's going to get worse, but I don't think I'm in imminent danger of dying. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of uh, your help and the medication, I actually have parts of my life that are almost normal. So, so it, it sounds like there's a what you at first were thinking about this illness, and then after your experience with hospice and palliative care, it's changed your thinking in a way. Do I well, get that it's right? or your my, attitude, or your well, it's it's changed my thinking about what's going to happen to me. Okay. That, that's probably it. I guess we, in the process of the diagnosis, which took forever to get the diagnosis of pulmonary fibrosis, uh, I'd, had pul- I'd had bronchoscopies and everything, and they didn't seem to come down on, you have pulmonary fibrosis, and that's it. So we got all the records together, and my family insisted that I go to the Cleveland Clinic and have, they have a, a pulmonary fibrosis center. Yeah. At the end of that all-day meeting up there, it was clear that they had nothing to offer me. I mean, he, the, the pulmonologist that I met with at the end, they had done, only did one test up there, and they said, you're just progressively worse. Each time you have your pulmonary function test, it's worse. And so at the end of the day, he said, I have two things to offer you, not to offer you, but to say to you, is for what disease you have, you can either have a lung transplant, now maybe one, I'm not going to have a lung transplant. You can have a lung transplant, or there are some medications, but they have very severe side effects. Or you can go home, and you can take care of the symptoms. And they mentioned palliative care. Mm -hmm. So I said, I don't want to live this way. I'd I'd rather die. If if it's going to be hospice, that's fine. I'm not Ellen anymore. I can't do anything. I can't, I mean, I talk fast, I walk fast, but now I can't do that, mm-hmm. and so I'm not Ellen. So then I came home, and because of my wonderful friend, Mary Jane Feller, I got in touch with you. And um, you came out to the house, which, no, but physicians don't do that. They don't make house calls. But you hadn't read that. You didn't know that. <laughs> and you came to the house, and I remember thinking, this is just going to be... Uh, nothing, but you at the by the time you got done talking to me, I 
I had this, I had this uh, weight on my chest. I just, I mean, you don't want to face death. You really, even though you say you're ready and you don't want to live, it's just scary. So when you came, it was, I had this overwhelming weight of what are they going to do for me? And I'm going to end up my life gasping for breath, wanting to die, and, and having a hideous death. And you said, ah, we're not going to have, you're not going to have that. And I said, why? He says, because I'm going to give you medication, and we're going to handle those symptoms, and you're not going to be air hungry. And I said, you're sure? He said, you said, I'm sure. It was sort of like that weight just lifted. He's going to do something. And not only that, you whipped out that prescription pad and you wrote me a prescription, which I never dreamed you would do. And not only did you write me a prescription for a narcotic, but you listened to me. And, and I said, I can't take all narcotics. Many of them make me throw up and so on. Which one can you take? I can take Dilaudid. Fine. Instead of saying, which many people had said, oh, that's a very, very strong narcotic. We can't start there. You didn't even bat an eye. You said, okay, it's Dilaudid. And you can take it every hour. I'm going to write your prescription. You can take it every hour. Every hour? I, you know, I'd be on the floor asleep. But what it did is it lifted that weight. I mean, I, I, I don't even, I can't even go back and tell you how I felt because it doesn't make sense even to me. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't even taken a pill yet. Mm -hmm. So then, when we got the Dilaudid, after we got the dosage straightened out, those pills were itty bitty bitty bitty. And you wrote it for a quarter of a milligram. And they come in two milligrams. And so they said, nah, nah, nah. We have to get a pill cutter and she can't cut it in four. So you said, up it to one milligram. And you never batted an eye. I mean, you never went into this, oh dear me, I'm giving her too much. You didn't do any of that. You said, make it a milligram. So I have my little pill cutter. And what it has done for me, which took me a while to come to grips with, it, um, and I took one just before you came, it makes it easier to breathe without my even realizing it. I mean, it, it, it gives me energy. It, it, it makes me almost be Ellen again. Um, and, it, and that made no sense to me. So that's when I questioned you, like, why is this working? Mm-hmm. And uh, probably the best explanation to me that made sense to me was, and this came from Mary Jane Fellows, she said, do you remember when we used to treat uh, uh, congestive heart failure patients who were gasping for breath, we would give, give them morphine. And then they would just relax and they would breathe better. And I thought, oh my God, I remember that. I remember that. I did that. When I was a nurse, I remember that. So it was like, okay, so something is helping me breathe better. But the second thing it did, cognitively, I think it makes me not think about the breathing. I mean, it, it, I don't know what the Dagon drug does, but it's wonderful. And I take it. As, you suge- as I need it. So today, I, t- I take it every morning with breakfast mm-hmm. so that I'm awake and I do the crossword puzzle and I love the dispatch. And then I take it usually around noon, usually at supper time and then bedtime. Mm-hmm. And that's just, it, 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 that's enough. Yeah. So 
Wonderful. So let's go back to when I first met you. Do you remember how you were feeling and your sort of medical condition when I first met you? Well, I was losing weight like crazy. Right. And that's what I think the weight loss was part of the reason for the Cleveland Clinic feeling I was ready to die. I had I, my normal weight. I'm five foot four and a half. And um, my normal weight was 127, 125. And I was down to 103. It was like I was just wasting away. I was like Auschwitz. I mean, I, I'm so skinny now, it's just pitiful. Nothing fit me. And um, I, I could not eat. And people would, they, in the best of intentions, they would say, oh, try Boost and drink Insure and do this. And do. I simply couldn't get it down. So I guess that's... That was the overwhelming thinking is that what is going to happen to me is I'm going to waste away. And I remember saying that to you and you said, not eating isn't going to kill you. And I thought, yeah, yeah, well, you don't know what you're talking about because there's not much left of me. But for some reason, and I can't give Delata credit for this, for some reason, slowly, very slowly, over weeks, I began to eat more. And I, re I remember the day I had taken a nap constantly. I said to Ted, my husband, I think I'm a little bit better. He said, I can see it. He said, you're eating a little bit more and uh, he's, you seem to have more energy. So I don't know what happened. Delata doesn't help your appetite. No. No, all it does is change your brain's perception of the work of breathing. But you're making the point about how that's tied to everything else and when you're worried and upset and feeling that's because feeling short of breath is about one of the most frightening symptoms oh it is. is it's scary yeah well when that goes away then your attention can turn to the other things that seems too simplistic mm, at least that's the way i think about it well and and then a lot of people said yeah but you were just depressed <laughs> i don't buy that i don't i don't think Sure, I was depressed, but I don't think that depression was going to make me not eat. I mean, it literally, I thought, physically, I couldn't choke the food down. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, broadly, when people have to choose between eating and breathing, they choose breathing. Well, see, I, I honestly, though, I didn't feel that short. I didn't feel short of breath enough that I couldn't eat. Yeah. I didn't think it interfered with that. I don't know what it was. Mm -hmm. All I know is all of a sudden, mm -hmm. not all of a sudden, over a, over a three-week period of time, I began to want to eat more. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm still too skinny. Yeah. I still weigh 97 pounds, for God's sakes. And so I look... I wouldn't want anybody to see me naked. I mean, it would be scary. But, but I can, Ted and I go out to eat. Mm -hmm. uh, we even worked up our nerve to go to a movie. Mm -hmm. I usually can only do things in like increments of two hours. Mm -hmm. And then I just am like, done. Yeah. And I wouldn't let people come visit me. That's the other thing. I just simply couldn't. You know, everybody and their brother wants to come see you. When you're in hospice, they want to say their last goodbye. But it, it was um, too much. So Ted had to say, you know, she's really not up to that. And then slowly, he would, like, plant the idea. He said, I think, I think you need to see your friends. I think you need to let them come and visit you. 
And so I have, I, I began to do that. And now, uh, you know, I can, I can actually say to somebody, I can last for two hours. Mm-hmm. Now, the people that are the biggest problem are the family. Mm-hmm. Because once they get here and they get on that couch and I get on that couch, they want to stay. And finally, so Ted and I have a sort of a system that he'll look at me and I'll say, yeah, and he'll say, your mother's fading. It's time for you to go. So, and that works. Yeah. Well, I'm remembering how fatigued you were. When I first met you, you said you were sleeping 20 hours a day or oh, it something seemed like, like it. it seemed yeah, like it seemed like it. Well, it, I was sleeping at least 16 when you met me. Yeah. So I was barely up, it seemed like. Right. Well, and that picture of losing weight, losing energy, are all things that you associate with people coming to the end of their lives. Yes. And then you started taking the hydromorphone, and things got better. They did, they did and I, I can't give credit to that for the, that, that made my... Uh, appetite better but it, maybe it made my brain better well <laughs> I don't know what it did even now though I'm not eating enough I really need to push myself a little bit and um, food doesn't particularly taste good so you know I've, I have a very limited menu that I really like mm-hmm. but it's it's enough and mm-hmm. I, I actually have vowed that this summer if it ever comes um, I'm going, to, I'm going to try to do a little bit of outside walking. You know, I used to walk every night with Mary Jane. Mm-hmm. We'd walk a mile and a half, two miles every night. Mm-hmm. And so I don't do any of that. Yeah. Toward the end of the summer, I was able to walk to her house, which is two, just two doors up and back. But um, I, I, haven't been, I don't walk in the winter because I'm afraid I'll fall. Mm-hmm. But I, I will go with Ted. When Ted goes, like, say, to Sam's or something like that, I'll go with him and try to walk with him around the store. But sometimes I have to go sit down. Yeah. And for some patients, when their symptoms get better controlled, they not only forget about their underlying illness, but they begin to even wonder if it's really there or it's all that bad. Has that happened to you? Well, it isn't. Well, what happens to me is I think it's going to get better. Mm-hmm. And it isn't. I know it isn't, but I keep thinking, look how far you've come. Mm-hmm. And look what you can do that's, quote, normal. I mean, like, we went out to see the darkest hour. Mm-hmm. And I did really well. I came, you know, I, di- I didn't have any shortness of breath. I didn't have any problems. And so you fool yourself and you think, I'm getting, I'm back to normal. But it, then it doesn't take any time at all. And it catches up with you. And you know, you come home and you just collapse mm-hmm. on the couch. So I'm still, I, I sleep eight hours every night. Mm-hmm. And I take two, two hour naps. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not normal. Mm-hmm. So I'm not normal. Right. And I, I can't do things with family that I would like to do. Yeah. So th- those are hard this, those are hard realities to deal with. Those are things that make me cry, that make me say, but I want to go visit my granddaughter and uh, she's in California and uh, I want to go visit her, but I can't. And my family have finally learned, don't invite me, because then I just get all weepy, you know. And I have a, I have a grandson who's in the Ohio State Marching Band, 
and he plays a sousaphone, and you know they get to dot the I. Mm -hmm. Well, he, you don't get to, I've learned a lot about the band. I could give you a dissertation on the band, but you, you can't dot the I until you've been in the band four years. So he didn't get, he didn't make it his freshman year. So he's, next year he'll be a senior, but he's going to stay one whole semester longer so he can dot the I. Wow. But I want to see him dot the I. Mm -hmm. So that's my goal is okay. I can get to the, I don't know how we're going to do it, but um, my daughter-in-law says that we'll pull strings from somebody's strings and they'll have a wheelchair for me and I'll get to go to the game where he dots the I. So that's my goal. Sounds wonderful. It is a wonderful goal. Yeah. And then, you know, I, he was, he was just, he's just such a wonderful, he's six foot five, great big guy, uh, but he's just, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful grandson. Very uh, caring for us. He's our tech support when we can't make our iPad work or anything. But um, my goal was to see him dot the I. Wonderful. I want to go back to when we were first discussing using our narcotic to treat your shortness of breath. What was on your mind when we were talking about that? Well, I guess what scared me, two things, was, uh, was it just going to be one of these little, would it just help for a little short period of time? And would I become addicted? Mm -hmm. And of course I was going to become addicted, I guess. I mean, I don't know. If you take the same thing all the time, I guess, and it is a narcotic, you do become addicted. I don't feel like some days if I only take it twice, which isn't very, that's unusual, but I don't feel withdrawal symptoms. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel symptomatic. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I don't even know what the withdrawal symptoms would be, mm -hmm. but I, I, I'm not having severe shortness of breath, mm -hmm. and I, I don't feel um, like I want it and can't get it. Do you understand what right, I'm that preoccupation with the drug? You yes, I don't have that. And when you take a dose, what effect does it have on you? Well, you like when I take a dose, within an hour, mm -hmm. I... Um, I don't even have, I feel, I don't know, you're going to, this is so dupey. I feel better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't, I can't even tell you that I feel that I'm breathing better. I don't even know that I'm breathing better. I don't, honestly, I don't go around puffing and panting exactly. Mm -hmm. I know when I've overdone mm -hmm. and I have to sit down and think. But I don't go take a dose because I'm puffing and panting. And I kind of try to take them to, to, to level out my day. Yeah. That's sort of how I look at it. So you feel better, but it's out, I'm not hearing you say you take it and you, oh, it's the best thing you no, ever had. No. Like, oh, no, no. I got to have my next hit. No, 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 no. I never feel like that. Yeah. I, it doesn't hit me. It isn't like I, when you read about druggies and so it isn't a all of a sudden a good feeling. I don't have that at all. Yeah. I never have that all of a sudden it's a good feeling. What will happen is um, it, it, like, like I will have lunch and then if I'm then I'll t I might take a Dilaud, you know, one milligram Dilaud and then I'm able to stay up and read and enjoy the book 
better. That's, isn't it strange? Isn't no. this a strange thing? You're feeling better. I'm feeling better, but I, if I didn't take it, what I would do is I would nap quicker. But you'd nap. And yet I think the fear is if you're taking narcotic, you'll be high. Yeah, but I don't get high. So you don't get high, or it'll put you to sleep, and it doesn't put you to it sleep. It doesn't seem to. Because you're, it's a very low dose. Yeah, but it's high. In a way, I'm high now. But I think you're high because you're enjoying your life. Yes. And that's not, that's not a drug high. No, no, no. That's it, a people it, high. It's, and it's almost like um, It's almost like it's back to me. Yeah. Like I always talk too much. Mm-hmm. And so I talk too much when I feel good. Yeah. So, so I think it's... To me, that's medicine is best when it makes people more themselves. Right? Well, that's what it does. Yeah. It doesn't make me high like I want to do something I don't normally do. I want it to make me feel better so I can read a book. I mean, come on. That's yeah. hardly a high. Right. And the other thing that hasn't happened to you. So how long have you been taking the Dilaudid now? Well, it, you came the end of July. Yeah. So it's been then. It, but for like the first, for the first three weeks... I didn't do anything but live on the couch. It took that long for for Ted and I to even recognize that I was getting, quote, a little bit, that I felt better. Yeah. I mean, I would take it, but I don't, I don't know that I even knew that it was helping, mm-hmm. to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. And then it began to dawn on me that I was eating better and I actually, and my outlook was better. Uh-huh. And Ted says my depression got better. Okay. But I didn't think I was depressed. Yeah. Well, you know. Whatever. Or your, your expectation for what was going to happen yeah. um, changed. But July, August, September, October, November, December, January, February. So that was eight months ago. Have you changed the dose that you're taking? Oh, no. Huh? Mm-hmm. So, because many people worry when you start a narcotic, you have to use higher and higher doses. Yeah. And that hasn't been true no, for you and, at all. In fact, in fact, I would say, when I first started taking it, I remember one day I had six. Oh, I have a, a notebook. I yeah. write down every time I take it. Mm-hmm. I'm obsessed about that. I want to make sure I know and I don't. But I, I would say probably if, if I had to give you an average, if you took my little notebook, you would see probably more days with three mm-hmm. than four. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely not increased. Yeah. So I think this gets at some of the, all the myths that get in the way of people using yes. the narcotics. They think somebody will get high. There'll be too many side effects. Uh, you'll use up its effectiveness. Yeah, it that, kind of surprises me. Yeah, and yet, I would say from a palliative medicine perspective, this is usually what happens. Really? Yes. This is the expected course. But, so that you don't have to keep using more. No. I will say the other thing, though, that I'm not even sure I should talk about, but um, the first time you wrote me that big prescription, I looked at that big bottle of stuff and I thought, I just think I'm going to end it now. Uh-huh. I'm going to take the whole bottle. Uh-huh. But you know, I couldn't do that. Why? I don't know why. Probably because of my Christian upbringing mm-hmm. that one shouldn't kill oneself. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I made a, I, uh, it certainly, I, I, it, it, it crossed, certainly crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. Here's a big wad of it, mm-hmm. but I don't know 
it also was scary to think maybe it wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. Maybe you didn't give me enough to kill myself. Mm -hmm. And so then what would I be? Mm -hmm. A mess. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a cancer doctor by, by background, and the, every patient with cancer at some point wonders, should I kill myself rather than go forward? And the reason prescribing opioids in large quantities for cancer patients is so routine is because they don't. Why? But, but it goes through everyone's mind. Really? So I, it's another one of those myths that if it's in your mind, it means, oh, that's dangerous, as opposed to that's what normal human beings faced with something scary wonder whether they should end it. And then most people decide, well, on balance, no, not in the well, way that you have. And the other thing is, uh, I have such a good family. Yeah. And it would be... Uh, it was already hard for them, yeah. knowing that I was this sick. And just to do it to myself would, it seems selfish, mm -hmm. sort of. Yeah. That's kind of, that's, it's, only, it's, the only, it's the only thing I could come up with. Mm -hmm. But I'm so glad you're willing to talk about it out loud. Well, I wouldn't, I probably hope to heck I don't know anybody that sees this silly video. I mean, I don't want to talk about it to anybody. Uh -huh. I haven't talked to the family about it. Ted knows, yeah. but I haven't, uh, I don't, I don't want to talk to people about it. Right. I don't have to, but I think particularly we're doing this for health professionals. And we, I want them to see an example of someone who is taking this according to how it's prescribed is getting the expected clinical benefit and these are the things that go through a usual patient's mind. But let me tell you how scary it was for yeah. me to, to be decertified from hospice and yet not be sure that there was a palliative care program now, my primary care physician, who is wonderful, said, don't worry, Ellen, I'll take care of it. And, and she said, it is more and more difficult for us to order narcotics. But she said, you can do it. I can, I'm sure that I'll be able to do it. But it didn't, it would have been so much easier if, if the program had just been a slide in. And it wasn't a slide in. That's right. And the other thing, and, and I only learned this after I began to pay attention to palliative care, is while there is a palliative care at OSU, it's limited to outpatient, only cancer patients. That's right. Well, you know, come on. Why, why is that? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't understand it. Healthcare is beyond me anyway anymore. I mean, I don't know. And it's so limited based on what, who pays and how much they'll pay and so on and so forth. But it, from the patient's standpoint, it's scary. Yeah. It is scary. Yeah. Now, you're more than just a patient. You're a nurse. You also um, are a retired nursing school dean. So you have... So, t t I have so baggage. I wouldn't call it baggage. I would say you have another set of eyes through which to look. But as compare and contrast how you see things with your nursing eyes versus your patient eyes related to your experience of this illness. I, I, I'm not sure what, what you're trying to get at. Well, and I'm trying not to put words in your mouth. You've taken care of lots of people who are very sick yourself yes. as a nurse. You've also trained 
scores of nurses to go on and do that, to take care of people, and you are a perfectly healthy nurse doing all of that. Now you're in the position of being frightened. Uh, a disease is getting worse that no one can make better. Getting benefit from a drug that used to frighten you. Those are two different ways of looking yeah. at things. So uh, help me with what goes through your mind as, as you compare and contrast those. Well, I do think, I don't know, I, I, I guess I think when you are in the nurse role and you're the healthy person, it's hard to get into the shoes of the person that's so sick. And I think sometimes, um, as nurses and physicians and so on, we don't listen to the sick person. We, we, know, we know what you're going through. We've already taken care of multiple patients like this. And we know what's best for you. I think I would not be quite as arrogant if I did it again. The other thing is, um, I think we don't, I, I remember, I, I, was, I was an ICU nurse. I remember I walk fast, talk fast, I want to do everything fast, get them in, get them out, that kind of ER nurse, it was ER nurse too. But I think we don't, we used to talk in the ICU that you don't just take care of a patient, you have to take care of that family. Because when the family came in, they had 900 questions and so on. I think without any doubt, the family influence on a patient is enormous. And the family support is enormous. It's more so than I ever, I mean, even though I knew that and saw that daily in the ICU, uh, supportive families made all the difference. But as a patient, I, I'm, I am able to stay home and take care of myself because I have someone taking care of me, my husband. If I didn't have that, I would be, a, I would be, I would have to have someone take care of me. And so family, I think I, I didn't give enough credibility to family. And family can be a pain in the neck and can be obstructionists and blah, 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 blah. We know all that, but they can also be the bridge that, that we have to have, so. What effect has your illness had on your family? What, what? What effect has your illness had on your family? Hmm. Well, no one's too happy. <laughs> uh, in the beginning was a lot of crying. Uh, uh, grandkids were better than I expected. Grandkids would come to visit. They're really good about that. But they didn't weep and wail and carry on. They just came to visit. We're not going to talk about this illness. And I don't know if that was an avoidance. It was, I kind of was sitting back watching. Are they going to bring it up? Are they coming here to see me just before I die? Or what? But they didn't even talk that way. They came to visit Grandma like they always come to visit Grandma. 
and we talked about all kinds of other things and then Ted would say your grandma's fading and then they would leave and so there was never a downer when the, the grandchildren were particularly good and they're adults all many of them are in college and some of them are already done with college so they weren't downers at all my I have three boys and it was harder with them I mean they had a, a lot of trouble coming facing the fact that I was in hospice um, but they didn't stay away that's the part that was good I mean they didn't like avoid me um, I, 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 I don't know and then I think it took its toll on my husband uh, in many ways in many ways say some of those ways well Like how many, how many, you can't, you can't talk about it all the time. I mean, you just can't, you have to, you have to come to grips with the fact that you, that you have to go on with what life you have, whatever it is, and that you have to try to make it as, uh, near normal as it can be mm -hmm. so uh, I guess the early diagnosis of hospice was she's dying I mean that's what the hospice label does for you she's dying I think we talked a little bit about okay what do you want to happen when you die but we didn't dwell on it or talk very long at all. It was sort of like, what are we going to do now? And uh, uh, then slowly, it's because you have to know my husband. He, he didn't direct me in what to do, but he is good at planting ideas. Like, maybe we should take a, we should uh, have an outing today. It's been a while before, since you've been out of the house. What kind of an outing? Well, I'm going to go to Sam's. Maybe you could just walk around while I'm there or something. So I got pushed to do things, but I got pushed gently so that I didn't put my heels down and say no. So I think that that thing changed. The other thing is I don't hardly do anything around the house. I can't. The worst thing is I can't cook anymore because when I stand up, if you stand up and chop things, I can't do it. I have to stop and sit down. Standing up is the biggest energy user that I have. So I can't cook, and I hate that. So I ended up in tears multiple times on that. So finally we just quit worrying about cooking, and we either eat out or we bring it in or we eat minimal, a minimal preparation, I guess would be the thing. Mm -hmm. I so appreciate this conversation. I'm thinking in bringing it to a close, if you were giving advice to nurses, doctors, who are trying to learn how to take care of people like you, what would you advise now that knowing what you've been through? Hmm. Oh dear.
you know, I, no one made any big mistakes or anything so that I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I would tell them to do something differently. Um, it took them way too long to diagnose the respiratory fibrosis. And I didn't realize how bad it was until it was already really bad. I don't know that I would blame anybody for that. I guess the advice I would have is a lot of people have chronic illnesses and they live with them and they have a good life and part of that is your attitude and um, I didn't have a very good attitude about a chronic illness I didn't want to have a chronic illness and my primary care physician probably was the best advice giver she said that's your choice Ellen you have it you either live with it and make the best of it or you complain and whine and bitch about it but she said lots of people live with it and have a good life so I think in all honesty her advice was was really good mm-hmm. make up your own mind what you're going to do with it and uh, you know medicine can only help you so far and part of it is what you do with what help they offer uh-huh. so I think that would be my only piece of advice I think that's a great piece of advice and the other thing I'm remembering when I came to see you here at home um, the first time and we spent about an hour and when I uh, got up to go you expressed deep surprise almost it was semi-amazement although there was it was crossed between being amazed and being I don't know cross about it like that I sat and listened to you and I didn't try and correct you or I didn't try and change you. Do you remember that? Well, yeah, I, I was, your whole visit was a surprise. Ah. I mean, number one, a physician visited me and sat there for an hour and listened to me chatter. That's unheard of. And you, without batting an eye, wrote a prescription for Dilaudid, a whole big wad of pills. <laughs> That just amazed me. So the whole thing was like, where did he come from? What planet is he visiting? And why, why don't, don't more people know about him? Why, is, why was this such a surprise to me? Mm-hmm. It was a surprise to me that I could get that kind of access. Mm-hmm. And it still is to this day. Yeah, I, I get it. And we've talked about there's a, you don't feel worthy of it, or well, you're, you're get, you feel special, and that you don't like feeling special. Well, it isn't. It, it, it was. What's so sad is, what if I had a friend mm-hmm. that I thought needed hospice? What would I do to get them in this system? The system's not as easy to access as as you think it is. That's oh, oh, absolutely. And you'd call me, and we'd figure it out. I know, but that's because I have an in. That's right. 
But if I didn't have an in, if Mary Jane Fellers hadn't said, I know exactly who needs to see you, I will get a hold of him immediately. I mean, it was like manna from heaven. But I had tried on the, on the internet and got nothing, absolutely yeah. nothing. Yeah. The frustration of that is just incredible. So I would leave you with that. Make it easier to access these wonderful, pro- these wonderful services because, I mean, I, I stick to things. I, uh, and I'm an educated woman. You are. If I'm not educated and I give up easily, I would not have had this wonderful treatment. Yeah. That is sad, Charles. That's sad. Agreed. So I would s- scream to you, make hospice available with a person on the other end of the phone not internet kind of thing i mean just just to talk to a person makes such a difference so i promise that that video clip will make that to the to the boardroom at ohio house oh my god tell them tell them if they have a family member they're not allowed to pull in the people that they know they're not allowed to go to who they know how would they manage that's the worst thing about not, I know everybody in Pittsburgh, I could have picked up the phone if I was in Pittsburgh and had help in a minute. I'm in a strange land in Columbus, even though I've been here a long time now, since 2001. But I, it, I, I, nobody knows, I'm Joe Dokes here, you know, Jane Doe. I'm not a known entity. I can't pick up the phone and call. The dean of the nursing school who knows everyone and can call yes, exactly. and, and have her bidding done. Exactly. Right? And I don't, I, didn't, I don't have that here. Right. And if you've always had that, I mean, for 10 years at Pittsburgh, I could get anything I wanted. Yeah. But when I got here, I lost everything. Yeah. I lost all my ins. I lost all my contacts, you know, at the medical center. Right. And, I don't, you know, so I think the board of trustees should think, People who need this thing shouldn't have to go through a maze to get there and, and be frustrated. Yeah. I would rather that than anything else comes out of this is that the access, the access to hospice is easier. I'll try and do your bidding. Okay. All right. All right. Good. Thank you so much for doing oh, this. Oh, you're welcome. You took a lot of energy to, to do this, and I'm so I mean, I'm sitting here melting. Are you? Ha- Me? I'm melting, too. Okay. But I'm sure it looks good on the camera. Oh, good. I think it might be. All right. Are we okay? Yeah. That was fantastic. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content, make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.